Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Such a fascinating guest to speak to you today. Zach Foster is a historian. He's got a PhD from Princeton University in the history of Palestine, so certainly knows what he's talking about. I think we can agree on that. His perspective is influenced by the fact he's Jewish. Also, Zionism was something that was woven into his upbringing and slowly started to learn about the history of Palestine. Now, we talk about the long history of Palestinians being dehumanised, why he thinks Israel makes Jewish people less safe. We talk about Palestinian identity, a history of Gaza and Hamas that isn't really spoken about, Israel's history of using hunger as a weapon of war, the genocidal sentiments that have become so common in Israel, and if there's any hope. We've got a lot to talk about. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Let's be Zach. Thanks so much for having me, Owen. It's a pleasure to be on the pod. And also, thanks for having a microphone. We uh, <laughs> stand a microphone. Uh, makes particularly all the difference for those listening on the audio podcast. So, thank you. I just want to start first. I mean, I, I'm interested actually because you're just because you're a historian of Palestine, and there are not that, not enough historians of Palestine, uh, particularly in the Western world, if we're honest. Um, classic kind of you know Western imperialism, which is various states have a Western states colonize, oppress, and subjugate much of the world, and then there is not much interest by those living in, the, in, in those countries in the actual histories of the places which have been colonized and subjugated. What made you interested in Palestine? Thanks for that question. So I grew up in a Jewish environment, in a Jewish household, going to Jewish Zionist schools, Jewish Zionist youth groups, Jewish Zionist summer camps, right? Judaism and Zionism were two sides of the same coin. Um, we celebrated Passover for the same reason we celebrated Israel's Independence Day. Um, <clears throat> we sang the prayer for the state of Israel uh, in synagogue, just like we sang the, the Shema, uh, the prayer that Israeli soldiers uh, sang as they blew up uh, uh, blocks of Palestinian homes in Gaza, as we saw in a video that was uh, um, surfacing just this past week. So I grew up in this very, uh, uh, I would say, in, in this environment in which you know, Zionism was as much a part of my identity as anything else, right? Being pro-Israel, um, loving the state of Israel, wanting to visit Israel, supporting the IDF. Um, these were all things that I considered part of my identity growing up. And so obviously I got interested in Israel and just being the curious person that I was, um, I think as soon as I started to meet Palestinians, as soon as I started to um, read the history as it was written by historians, the new Israeli historians, as you may be familiar with, Benny Morris, Avi Shalim, Ilan Pape, Simha Flapan, all these Israeli historians um, writing about um, the 1948 war, um, Israel's ethnic cleansing of Palestine, uh, Israel's massacres in the 1956 war in Gaza, in Khan Yunis, um, you know, Israel, Israeli leaders in transience to making peace deals with, with Syria in the early aftermath uh, 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 of the establishment of the state of Israel. Israel's in transience with establish, uh, uh, creating a peace with Egypt in the aftermath of the 67 war. So reading this history um, really uh, just got me so much more interested in, um, yeah, in, in, in basically just trying to understand the truth about the, the history of this conflict. Um, and so one thing led to the next. And 
you know, next thing you know, 10, 15 years later, I'm doing my PhD in, in history, in, in really Palestinian history. The origins uh, of a Palestinian identity was what I focused on. And also a history of kind of the idea of Palestine, the concept of Palestine. When did people call the place Palestine? As you know, there's all this propaganda and mythology around how there was no such thing as a, a Palestine, how the people never called it Palestine. And so I just wanted to know, like, what did people call this place in history? I mean, just before we talk more, just in terms of context, the, the source of context stripped away, just in terms of that, that kind of, I guess, journey that you went on. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I don't normally talk about my love life in podcasts for obvious reasons, but I dated a Jewish guy a while ago, and he said to me that, uh, you know, Zionism is very much part of his upbringing. Um, and then he went to university, and that's when he first encountered non-Zionist um, narratives. Um, and he said he, he actually got a fight or flight response, that he could feel his heart beating fast, faster, and kind of almost feeling kind of anger and panic. Um, I mean, he, he's now sort of, he supports the freedom of Palestine. But I just give you that example that it, it just felt so much part of, of, of his identity for what the reason you just said. And I, you know, I always wonder how to best approach that because the Jewish people suffered a genuine, have the collective trauma is a huge part of that experience for very good reason for over 2000 years of persecution. Um, and that promise of Israel was something that links into that sense of collective trauma because it's supposed to be the answer to it. And that's why, I, so how how do we engage with that um, in a kind of emotionally intelligent way, I suppose? Emotions are very powerful. Uh, Israel is a country that Jews around the world are attracted to for emotional reasons, not for political reasons. You go to Israel, you know, you, you see Jews everywhere. You see uh, uh, people practicing Judaism out in the open, celebrating their Jewish identity. I mean, these are beautiful things. And so as a Jewish person growing up in, the, in a diaspora community, um, seeing Judaism alive and flourishing, it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful emotion that you feel um, as a diasporic Jew when you visit the state of Israel. I think what, what occurred for me, and I think what is now occurring for many, many Jews around the world, is, is, is a realization um, that the state of Israel is not acting in the interests of the Jewish people. I think the more you understand that the state of Israel, in my view at least, is endangering Jews. I mean, just to give you a sense, whenever Israel goes on these uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, aerial bombardment campaigns in Gaza, you see a flare-up of anti-Semitism. There's nothing new about this. When Israel goes on these killing rampages in 2008, it killed more than 1,000 Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza. In 2014, it killed more than 1,400 Palestinian civilians in Gaza. In 2021, it killed more than 200 civilians in Gaza. In each one of those uh, campaigns, it, those wars that waged on Gaza, you saw a, a rise in anti-Semitic incidents all around the world, in France, in the UK, in the United States. And the reason is obvious, is that when you have a, co a government claiming to speak on behalf of the Jewish people, claiming to act in, in the interests of the Jewish people, uh, claiming to represent Jews all around the world, and, and in fact, giving Jews citizenship no matter where they come from, giving them an Israeli passport, giving them free housing, giving them free Hebrew language instruction, helping them settle into a new country. So when you have a state claiming to represent Jewish interests, well, guess what happens to Jews all around the world when that state engages in horrific acts of violence against innocent civilians? It's Jews around the world that face of the retribution. And I don't think there's anything unique about the Jewish state. We see this all around the world in, in almost every single 
instance I can think of, right? We had this whenever, when COVID first broke out, it was called the China virus. And there was all this anti-Asian hate in the United States. We saw this in World War II. When uh, you have after Pearl Harbor, you have all this anti-Japanese hate in the United States. We saw this after 9-11, Muslim, all this anti-Muslim uh, hate and Islamophobia in the United States. So there's nothing particular or unique about what we're seeing. But I think now that Jews are sort of realizing that this state is not acting in our interests, it, it, it's actually endangering us. Um, I think that is the starting point for many Jews around the world to say, um, to start to question their loyalties and their allegiances um, to the state of Israel. In terms of just that kind of historical context, which you came to understand, one of the reasons I'm very interested in it is, I guess, the racist dehumanization of Palestinians. Um, and it's, you know, I, I always I keep saying this, but I've worked in the Western media now for a long time, so I'm not naive uh, I'm, I'm fully aware of, you know, I'm not surprised by what's happened, but I'm still shocked by it at the same time. You can be shocked and not surprised. Um, and that's, there's no pretense that, about Palestinian life. There's not any subtlety about the lack of worth of a Palestinian life. So you've got this, um, there's this group called Led by Donkeys in Britain who do these stunts. Um, and they did, yesterday what they did is they got the clothes of the equivalent of 11,500 children and they laid them all side by side on a beach, um, which goes on then for five kilometers. And they zoom out, I think, using uh, a drone. And, you know, it's, to, it's to just to make the point about how many have been killed. And the reason they're doing that is because people aren't looking at Palestinians as human beings. So people are just desperately flapping around, trying to find ways to make vi people visualize death on a mass scale so they actually care. And, you know, we see this in the Western media, how Palestinian life is degraded. And I just wait about the historical context of that, how, how you know, from the Nakba, the catastrophe, the expulsion of Palestinians onwards, how Palestinians have been portrayed. And I guess how that shape shifts, because, you know, today the focus is on Hamas, the Palestinian Liberation Organization used to be the target, and that was a secular organization. So, you know, the way, those portrayals have obviously metamorphosized. So could you just tell us about that, the kind of how Palestinians and how embedded in our culture that is? This problem is more than a century old. It's centuries old. In fact, you have, <clears throat> if you go back to the 19th century, um, uh, the, the most popular books in the in places like Europe and the United States were actually books about Palestine and Syria and the holy places. Um, the second most popular book uh, behind the Bible in, in, in mid 19th century United States what was, um, I believe it was a book about the Holy Land. Um, and, and, and basically, you have all these travel guides to the Holy Land um, written by Americans, Brits, uh, uh, French, German, Russian in the 19th century. And they're books about the land, but not the people living in it. The people living in it are don't exist, right? If anything, they're interesting to the extent that they represent the residual uh, 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 <clears throat> um, living inhabitants from the, from the ancient Bible. They're interesting to the extent that they help us understand the Bible. And so this is kind of the image that you have to understand that the West um, has of the Orient, of the Levant, of the Middle East, of Palestine, uh, I would say up until the mid-20th century. And so we, there was one study that was uh, uh, conducted by Paula Garcia. She published a study of basically articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal from 1914 to 1930. And basically she concludes that they are covering the Zionist viewpoint. They, they, there's essentially no attention paid to the Palestinian Arabs. They don't exist. They're, they're, they're not. And, and you'll notice if you look at photograph collections from the first half of the 20th century, they're photographing the landscapes. They're photographing uh, uh, um, the, the architecture, the mosques, 
of the synagogues, but they're not photographing the people. The people don't exist. And the same is true, of course, with Zionism. If you look at many of the earliest uh, 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 Zionists, uh, they're talking about how this is a, a land for a people with uh, for a people uh, uh, without a land, right? This is the narrative. Obviously, they're rudely awakened when they discover that there actually are many hundreds of thousands of people living in Palestine. But that narrative continues well uh, into the second half of the 20th century. There was a study written by Maha Nasser, who is, I believe, a professor of Middle East history at Arizona, Arizona University. And she conducted a study of, of articles published in uh, these are articles about Palestinians published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the Nation, from 1979 to 2019. So this is taking us all the way up uh, uh, to the present moment, essentially. And what she finds is that there's many, many thousands and thousands and thousands of articles written about Palestinians in mainstream Western media in, in the United States, except there are very few of the articles are written by Palestinians. In the New York Times, the percentage is less than 1%. In the, in the Washington Post, I think the percentage is maybe about 2%. In the nation, uh, uh, not a single article was written by a pal not oh no excuse me not the nation um uh, maybe it's the um i'm forgetting now which publication but um no sorry the new republic new in republic. the new in the new republic not a single of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles written about palestinians not a single one of them was written by a palestinian so what you have is you have an entire people that have been erased from the, the, the mainstream media. They're not part of the landscape. And then when they finally are part of the landscape by the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, they just don't have permission to narrate in the words of the, of the famous Palestinian scholar Edward Said. They're not allowed to narrate. When they are allowed to narrate, they're brought on to talk about their own suffering. They're expected to be the perfect victim, in the words of Muhammad al-Kurd. They don't have the permission to be an analyst or an expert. They're not put on TV to talk about the history, uh, uh, to provide rigorous analysis. They're brought on TV to be a victim to talk about the suffering, and they're expected to be a perfect victim. Thus, they're expected to condemn uh, the atrocities committed by Hamas. They're expected to condemn acts of violence carried out by Palestinians. Um, but basically, um, they're, they're not really part of the conversation, even to this day. I mean, you saw the study that was conducted, I believe, by The Intercept that came out in, what was it, um, early January, that basically found the, again, same problem, mainstream media in the United States, New York Times, Washington Post, they emphasize Israeli victims over Palestinian victims, even though there are 30 times as many Palestinian victims as there are Israeli victims. They overemphasize anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S., completely ignoring the Islamophobic incidents in the U.S., even though since October 7th, we've had more anti-Islamic uh, hate more Palestinians die in the United States owing to anti-Islamic hate than we've seen anti-Semitic uh, um, anti, uh, anti hate. So again, we, we have this problem that dates more than a century where Palestinians don't exist in mainstream media. And when they do, um, you know, basically the, the, the force to um, condemn themselves or, you know, or they're just brought on to be shepherded on to mainstream media um, as, as, as a, like expected to be perfect victims. One thing that you have studied at length is the origins of what we could call Palestinian identity. Um, and, you know, Golda Meir, former Prime Minister of Israel, famously said there, there were no, there's no such thing as the Palestinians. Um, and that's been, and, and it's worth making that point because I think people often, it's easy to talk about the Israeli rights and, and say, you know, it was the, the, all of this is the Israeli right and, you know, they've taken over Netanyahu's arriving bogeyman. You know, she, she was obviously from the Israeli labor tradition. Um, 
so there was always that sense of, you know, there's no such thing as the Palestinians. That we didn't, therefore, we didn't displace anyone. We haven't taken anyone, anyone's land. That's the, that's the point. So just we're interested in your, in terms of how Palestinian identity emerged. And this is complex because, you know, different forms of nation emerge in different circumstances for different reasons and shift and change their meaning over time. Uh, but yeah, just wondering your thoughts. Yeah, this is something I've spent a lot of time researching. Um, I think... I was curious, when did people start to call themselves Palestinians? That is the basis of my dissertation research. And so you have many, um, <clears throat> just to provide some historical context, um, we're talking late 19th century, Ottoman Empire is in control of Palestine. You have many missionaries, Russian, German, American, British, French, uh, missionaries, German missionaries, opening up schools around the Ottoman Empire. Um, as part of this a great game, right? That you have all these empires that are vying for control of the Ottoman Empire. Um, for their own imperial uh, reasons. And, and so they're sending these missionaries, they're funding these missionary activities who are opening up schools. And in many of these schools, like the Russian Teachers Training Seminary in Nazareth, opened in 1886, they're teaching books called The History of Palestine, The Geography of Palestine. They're putting maps of Palestine on the walls. They're taking kids around, uh, they're taking kids, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, Arab Palestinian kids from Nazareth, from the Galilee, from Haifa. They're taking these kids on tours of the different holy sites around the Holy Land. Lo and behold, uh, by 1898, you have Palestinians starting to call themselves Palestinians in Arabic. Khalil Beda, Salim Kub'ain, Najib Nasad, and many others by the first uh, decade of the 20th century. And I think that's really the origins uh, of a Palestinian identity. And, and by the way, there's nothing really unique about a Palestinian identity um, emerging in, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You have, an Egyptian identity is emerging around the same time, a Syrian, a Lebanese identity, uh, an Iraqi identity. All of these identities are kind of emerging around the same time. And I think this is owing to the broader trends taking place around the world, the rise of nationalism, in Europe is now spreading all around the world, right? It's spreading to the Balkans in the late 19th century. It's spreading to Asia and Japan in the late 19th century. It's obviously also spreading around the Middle East in the Ottoman Empire, not just in Palestine or Syria, Lebanon, also in Turkey, also in, in, in the Balkans. So um, this is, I think, kind of a broader emergence of these new identities uh, based around uh, nations, um, the emergence of national identities. This is taking place, of course, not just in Palestine, but but all around the Middle East and Europe and Asia as well. Um, if we took just kind of more recently, I guess, in terms of historical context, because obviously we can't talk about what's happening now without 1948, the mass expulsion of over 700,000 Palestinians, including 15,000 who were, were killed, suffered violent deaths back in, in the Nakba. Uh, 1967 again um, in that war you get again mass expulsion of Palestinians um, and then you get the occupation of the West Bank in Gaza it's striking actually there was a manifesto written in 1967 by about 10 leading Israelis warning of what the occupation would end up doing and it's uh, prescient I would say it said it would turn us into a, a nation of murderers and murder victims um, but then you know and you get obviously the development of apartheid type system as diagnosed by the likes of Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, better than. Um, I just want just in terms of in terms of the more recent context, though, because with Gaza, the argument posit, uh, posited by Israel is we withdrew, we got out of there, um, they had a chance to, I think they say become Dubai or something, um, but you know, and and they blew it, and um, Hamas, um, you know, we could have had peace, but Hamas emerged, and they wish only our violent destruction, and therefore we have no choice but to besiege Gaza. So I'm just wondering about that kind of narrative in terms of how Hamas emerged 
um, and the history of what that meant in terms of Gaza and how that was just how that was used by the Israeli state to justify how Gaza was treated. I think that the narrative that Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 um, is is fiction. Um, excuse me. The, the narrative that you know Israel ended its occupation of Gaza in 2005 when it withdrew its 6,000 illegal Israeli settlers living in Gush Katif. That narrative is fiction, and I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, very many international uh, legal experts who would disagree with that. And the reason is quite obvious. Um, Israel is still considered the occupying power in Gaza um, <clears throat> by so many international uh, legal experts, yeah. because, including, the UN. including yeah. the UN, because it controls six of the seventh land borders. It controls the coastline. It controls the airspace. It controls the telecommunication network. Yeah. It controls the electricity. And it controls the population registry. Yeah. So when you control all of those things, which you, you have the capacity to literally wipe out every single person living in Gaza, which is what we're seeing now. And if you have the capacity to kill every single person living in a, a, a territory without any checks, without any balances, um, then you're still the occupying power. And, and I think it's important to recall as well that one of the explicit reasons why Ariel Sharon withdrew Israel's 6,000 Israeli settlers uh, in Gaza in 2005 was for the explicit purpose to be able to say, we left Gaza. It's not our responsibility anymore. And he said that explicitly. He said in September 2005, Gaza is no longer our responsibility. And I think that actually serves as a really useful starting point when thinking about how we got to, to today, which is to say that Israel wanted to wash its hands of Gaza. Israel didn't want to have – you recall that in the years prior to 2005, there were many attacks on those Israeli settlers in Gaza. They were, the Israeli army was bogged down in the early 2000s during the, during the Second Intifada. The Israeli army was suffering casualties. Right, um, They were being attacked. Israeli civilians were being attacked in Gaza. This was a liability, and Ariel Sharon knew that. And so he took the settlers out and said, aha, much easier to control the land – to keep a tight grip on what goes in and what goes out when we have no uh, civilian presence inside the territory. So this was very calculated. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, I don't think any serious legal experts would, would, would agree with the Israeli propaganda uh, that, that Israel ended its occupation of Gaza in 2005. Um, and, and look, to, just to get to this broader question of kind of how it came to be that Hamas uh, took over the uh, took over Gaza in in 2007. There is actually quite a bit of propaganda also circulating about this question. Um, I mean, recall that uh, there were free and fair uh, elections held in, in in January 2006 in the Palestinian occupied territories. Right, those free and fair elections were encouraged by then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. They were encouraged uh, uh, by then U.S. President George Bush, um, because this was part of you know, the Bush doctrine, right? Let, we're spreading democracy in the Middle East. So they encourage free and fair democratic elections in the Palestinian occupied territories. Um, uh, Hamas wins a majority of the legislative seats in the Palestinian Legislative Council, that legislative bo body that was a result of the Oslo process. Um, they win a majority of the seats. And then what happens after that? This is the part that, that most media pundits forget. The United States, and, and, and there's a fantastic piece um, I think is it in I, I, we can we can share the link to the, to, the, to the reporting, but we know that the United States was backing and funding 
Fatah's military wing in the Gaza Strip, led by Dahlan, in the immediate aftermath of Hamas's legislative victory. I mean, this is classic U.S. foreign policy. People who are familiar with U.S. US foreign policy shouldn't find anything surprising about the United States backing the loser in a democratic election. We did that all around Latin America. We continue to do that all around the world. This is classic kind of imperial American foreign policy that we've you know, been doing for decades. But of course, we did it in Gaza. In the immediate aftermath of, of that victory, we tried to undermine uh, uh, the people who won the election because we didn't like the results of the election. And as a result, there was this civil war in Gaza in which Fatah and Hamas were basically clashing over who was going to be policing the streets of Gaza. And lo and behold, Hamas won that fight and took over Gaza in in in, in the summer of 2007. But I think there's a tremendous, uh, you, you'll hear people say, and by the way, I was one of these people because I didn't fully appreciate that history. You'll hear people say, you know, Hamas committed a coup. Well, um, they took power by force after the, the, the people who lost the election refused to give up power, the same people who were backed and funded and supported and armed by the United States and Israel. So I think there's a general level of misconception and misunderstanding of how Hamas uh, came to power in Gaza in 2007. Um, Tony Blair, not so when I generally quote as having things of particular interest to say, it must be said, but he said in 2017 in an interview for the book Gaza Preparing for Dawn, in retrospect, I think we should have, right at the very beginning, tried to pull Hamas into a dialogue and shifted their positions. I think that's where I would be in retrospect. But obviously, it was very difficult. The Israelis were very opposed to it. But, you know, we could have probably worked out a way whereby we did, which, in fact, we did end up doing informally anyway. Um, I just think that's quite striking because um, if anyone says something like that now, they'd probably be driven out of public life, I'll be honest with you. But it is interesting that Tony Blair said in he thought it was a concession on his part uh, that it was wrong for the West to have boycotted Hamas after the election win, because that's what you got. Um, you got an international boycott. And he actually said that was a mistake. And so I just wonder what you think about that, given everything that's happened. The number of mistakes Israel has made with regard to Hamas is manifold and dates, by the way, long before 2005, 6, 7. Recall that in 1988, so um, <clears throat> maybe just to set the stage here, uh, you know, 1967, Israel occupies the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. Between 1967 and 1987, Israel is militarily occupying millions of Palestinians living in those territories, denying them the right to vote for the government and the military that controls their lives, killing on average 32 Palestinians every year for 20 years, confiscating hundreds of thousands of dunams of privately owned Palestinian property, deporting thousands of Palestinians outside the occupied Palestinian territories. This is long before there's any Islamic Jihad in, in the territories or Hamas in the territories. These are civilians being subject to military rule and this, of course, leads to an eventual uprising known as the Intifada, the first Intifada. Um, and in the first year of that uprising, from late 1987 until the end of 1988, uh, it, the Israeli army enters Gaza and kills 142 Palestinians. Palestinians kill zero Israeli soldiers and zero Israeli civilian, uh, civilians in that first year. It was because it was a non it was primarily a nonviolent uprising. And what happened to Hamas during that first year of the uprising? Okay, recall that on the eve of the uprising on December 6th. 1987, Hamas is not called Hamas. Uh, they're called Al-Mujamma' Al-Islami. They're basically, which translates roughly to the Islamic collective. They're an Islamic charity organization dedicated, dedicated to Islamic preaching, 
They're funding schools uh, and health clinics um, <clears throat> and, and after-school programming for kids. Um, they're basically a charity organization. And then when Israel, uh, um, in that first year, slaughters 142 Palestinians, that radicalizes Hamas. Um, but it, it, you know, and, and so by 1988, August 1988, Hamas passes its infamous charter in which it calls for an Islamic state in Palestine and it calls for the destruction of Israel. But recall that it, during the first six months of 1988, Israel is slaughtering Palestinians every day. And it was because of that gruesome violence that I think Hamas transitioned from a uh, charity organization to a, 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 a violent militant organization um, in 1988. But there's but but it gets it, it, there's even more layers of complexity to this, which is that in those intervening, let's call it six, seven, eight months, during which time Hamas is basically going through this transition. In February 1988, you have uh, Hamas's number three in command, Mahmoud Zahar, travels to Tel Aviv, meets with Shimon Peres, then foreign minister in Israel, and says, "We are open to peace." Hamas, uh, Mahmoud Zahar is number three. He's number three in Hamas. Goes back to Tel Aviv in June 1988 and tells him and tells his uh, then Israeli defense minister Yitzhak Rabin, "We are open to peace. We are open to peace if Israel uh, announces its intended withdrawal from the occupied territories, allows Palestinians to name their representatives, and releases Palestinian uh, prisoners uh, uh, fr fr from prison." Boom! Israel could have had peace with Hamas in 1988. But it, ref but but these were total non-starters for Israel because Israel had no intention of withdrawing from the occupied territories in 1988. And on the contrary, from 1982 to 1988, Israel tripled its settler population. Israel was in the process of dramatically intensifying and expanding its control of the occupied territories. And so these demands that Israel withdraw from the occupied territories fell on deaf ears. And so there was no peace with Hamas in, in, in February or June 1988. Instead, we got Hamas's 1988 charter in which it called for Israel's destruction. And then, of course, what happened after 1988, Hamas starts to carry out these attacks overwhelmingly, by the way, on Israeli military targets from 1988 until 1994. The vast majority of Hamas's attacks are against, are against military targets. They're targeting Israeli soldiers. They're not targeting Israel. There are a few attacks on civilians, but overwhelmingly it's against military targets. And by the way, that's why Hamas is not even labeled a terrorist organization until 1996. OK, so I mean, by the United States. So, um, you know, anyways, there were many opportunities for peace. Israel had no intention of making peace with Hamas, not in 1988, not in the early 90s when it expelled hundreds, hundreds of Hamas's, not its first uh, tier of, uh, 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 you know, its first echelon of leaders, but also its second and its third. It expels 400 Hamas militants to southern Lebanon in the early 90s. Guess what happens? Guess who those Hamas militants form a partnership with in the early 1990s? It's Hezbollah. Okay, we see where, what, what, what that has done to Israel. But they, they missed opportunities in the 90s for peace with Hamas. Then, of course, they missed the many opportunities in the immediate aftermath of Hamas's takeover of Gaza. You had Ismail Haniyeh write op-eds in The Guardian, uh, a newspaper you I'm ex expecting to be somewhat familiar with. Ismail Haniyeh publishes uh, op-eds in The Guardian basically saying, look, we are open to peace. Here are our demands. An independent Palestinian Arab state on the 1967 borders, a capital in East Jerusalem, and a just resolution of the Palestinian refugee issue. I mean, they're basically coming to the same conclusion that the entire international community has come to for decades, which is we basically understand how the two-state solution framework is going to work. Now it's just upon Israel to accept actually withdrawing from the territories, actually giving Palestinians real sovereignty, actually dealing with the refugee issue, and actually giving Palestinians control of, of East Jerusalem. But those have all those demands have been non-starters for Israel. And so here we are, you know, two, three decades later, 
um, Israel, you know, suffering its most gruesome violent attack on its territory in its entire history. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the, the atrocities there committed on, on October 7th. But before that, um, and obviously Haaretz and others made this point about how Benjamin Netanyahu saw Hamas control and other figures on the, I suppose, hard right, far right of Israeli politics, and saw Hamas ruling Gaza as useful because you had a division in the Palestinian national movement where they would say, A, you can't treat, um, we can say Hamas isn't a partner of peace, so we don't need to even talk about that. But B, because Fatah now only are in power in one part of the occupied territories, they aren't in, they can't be the representatives of the Palestinian people, so we don't have to speak to anyone. Um, and the stories of, you know, trying to get Qatar to shore up Hamas financially. What do you think about that kind of narrative? Do you think basically there was a form of a, a not a pact, but there was, it was seen in the interest of the likes of Benjamin Netanyahu to shore up Hamas for various reasons? I mean, this policy dates <clears throat> well well before 2017 and 19 when those uh, when we have documented, when we have Israeli leaders, I, I believe Smotrich was the first one. I think it was 2017. There's yeah. a quote who, who, where he says, you know, I think it's on Israeli TV where he says very uh, directly, uh, Hamas is the asset and, and, and the Palestinian Authority is the liability. And then there he, were he tweeted it as well. He tweeted, he tweeted it. He tweeted it. He tweeted and it. then Netanyahu, I believe, said the same thing in 2019, if I'm not wrong. M yeah, he said that apparently privately to some Likud members. Right. And and so, but but I think the policy is much, you know, can be traced to at least that 2006, 7, 8 period when there were attempts between Fatah and Hamas to come to a, a reconciliation, um, right? You had the Cairo agreements, you had, there were a bunch of attempts um, that, and in fact, there was an agreement that was basically signed between Fatah and Hamas. Um, I believe it was the Cairo agreements of 2000, 2006. Um, but, um, you know, but basically Hamas and Fatah agreed to a unity government. But that unity government was boycotted. It was not recognized by Israel or the United States, right? Because Hamas had refused to officially um, you know, renounce violence. They had refused to officially, you know, uh, basically agree to the existing frameworks, the existing internationally agreed upon frameworks for resolving the Israel-Palestine dispute. Um, but but there were, Israel could have had uh, a negotiated settlement with that unity government, but they knew that as long as Hamas was part of that government, that they would have to make real concessions. Because it was clear that Fatah was basically, I mean, Abbas was already in charge of Fatah at that point. Mahmoud Abbas had already basically kind of, you know, been this figure who was very compliant, who would basically do what, what Israeli leaders told him to do. Whereas Hamas was less compliant. You know, they were, no, like, if you want to end this conflict, you have to make real concessions. And that has long been Hamas's point of view. Um, but Israel never has been interested in making real concessions. When I say real concessions, I mean actually withdrawing from the occupied territories, right? Actually giving Palestinians sovereignty. Israel knew that it would have to give Palestinians real sovereignty if it was negotiating with a coalition that included Hamas. And so since 2006, the position of most Israeli leaders has been, well, why don't we just basically pretend like, we, let's reject the right to exist. I mean, that's how I would describe it. We reject Hamas's right to exist. Um, and, and, and so the policy has been, um, let's, uh, especially after 2007, um, you know, and, and then I think it became much more clear in the mid 2000s, um, let's keep Hamas in power, 
Um, you, you, I mean, you're, you're well aware of the reporting that you had Qatari officials landing in Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv with suitcases full of cash, driving that those suitcases full of cash from Ben Gurion Airport uh, to the Eretz Crossing, driving through the Eretz Crossing through Israeli military checkpoints with suitcases full of cash, delivering it to Hamas. This was the Israeli strategy: is let's keep them alive but weak. Let's keep them on our southwestern flank, but let's keep them divided. Um, it's much, much easier to continue the settlement expansion, uh, con continue denying 99% of Palestinians in Area C building permits. Uh, let's continue expelling Palestinian residents from Susia, from Masafariyata, from Sheikh Jarrah, from Silwan, from the E1 zone, from Khan, uh, Khan al-Ahmar, from Khumsa. Let's continue to expel Palestinians from their homes because that's what we really want. We really want the West Bank. The West Bank is the prize. That's where all the Jewish holy states are. That's where we have 800,000 Israeli settlers. Gaza? Lock them up, throw away the key, and forget about it. Um, so, so Gaza has long been an excuse. Let Keep Hamas in power. Let them bring cash in. Um, make sure they stay in power so the Palestinians are divided, so we don't have to negotiate, so we can keep expanding the settlements, so we can keep taking more Palestinian land, and ultimately take over, uh, annex the West Bank, which is the ultimate goal, I, I think, of every Israeli political leader since 2009. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about is, again, putting this in a kind of historical context, is, I mean, if we look at now the statistics, horrifying, 80% of the world's hungriest people are now in Gaza. Um, you know, and when we talk about that, I think it's worth, because a lot of the focus is on violent death, quite understandably, the horrific violent death toll, but history tells us that most people in wars don't die of the violent death, they die of other reasons, collapse of the healthcare and so on. But obviously hunger is a very important part of it. Uh, there's the spectre of famine. Um, some believe that particularly large, significant parts of northern Gaza are already in famine. And there are already reports of people, including babies, dying of hunger. I'm just wondering about that historical context there and the use of hunger. Um, Ehud Barak, I know the former Israeli prime minister, suggested that um, because before that, there was huge amounts of food insecurity in Gaza as well. And he said that the, the policy wasn't to starve, it was to put them on a diet, which is gruesome language. But what's the kind of context? I would date Israel's policy of starving Palestinians in Gaza, as well as the West Bank, but primarily Gaza. I would date that to 1991. Wow. What happened in 1991? After two and a half decades of an Israeli policy that encouraged Palestinians in the occupied territories to work in Israel, Israel pulled the rug from under all of those Palestinians working in Israel and said, 
instead of giving you a general permit to work in Israel, you now need to apply for an individual permit. So what happened overnight was that Israel threatened the livelihoods of 40% of the people of Gaza, right? Because everyone in Gaza in, on the eve of 1991 was working in Israel, right? You could make salaries dramatically higher in Israel as well as in the Israeli settlements uh, in Gaza than you could make working in the Gazan economy. And there are many reasons for that, including that Israel actually sought to uh, uh, prevent Palestinian companies and businesses and firms in the occupied territories from 1967 onwards from competing with Israeli firms and businesses and companies uh, do, I, I, involved in those same industries. And we know this is true. This was explicit Israeli policy. It was make it difficult for Palestinians in the occupied territories uh, to to <clears throat> to establish businesses. Um, they basically closed most of the banks in the Palestinian occupied territories in the 70s and 80s. So there was no lending infrastructure. There were no credit markets. It it was hard to borrow money. That made it hard to start capital-intensive businesses. There were specific restrictions that were placed on any type of Palestinian who was competing with an Israeli firm or an Israeli sector, such as you know the amount of cucumbers and tomatoes that could be imported into Israel, the amount of fish that could be fished on the, in Gaza and, and imported in, in, into Israel, dairy farms. There were restrictions placed on dairy farms in places like Ramallah. So basically, Palestinians uh, are now forced to work in Israel. And so they're made dependent on Israel. And then in 1991, after the uprising, after Israel realizes, oh my God, Palestinians are all terrorists, um, then they're like, aha, I know the solution. Let's prevent Palestinians from even entering Israel. And this begins the crisis, right? Because overnight, you have 40% of the population of Gaza that now has to apply for the permit that it was given automatically before. And so by 1996, and then what Israel does, beginning in really, I would say in 94, 95, and 96, Israel starts to, starts to impose lockdowns, right? So in, it basically, it, it peaks in 1996, where for something like, I think, over 100 days, every single Gazan, is basically locked into their towns and their villages and their refugee camps. They can't leave. There's 70% unemployment in Gaza in 1996. And in fact, the World Food Program, the WFP, basically goes on this emergency initiative to provide food aid to 10,000 Palestinians in Gaza who are, who are suffering from food insecurity in 1996. This is during a period of time when everyone's optimistic about peace. There are Palestinians going hungry in Gaza. Because they can't, they're being locked into their towns and villages and refugee camps. And then things get a little better by the late 90s, but things worsen again in the early 2000s when Israel brings back its policy of lockdowns, known in Israel as closures. So they close down, and again, you have 40% unemployment rates in Gaza, and by the early 2000s, from 2002 to 2004, um, it's actually not 10,000 10, uh, uh, people that are provided food aid, but hundreds of thousands of people in Gaza are now in need, are now food insecure, and now in need of emergency food aid in 2000, from 2002 to 2004. This is before Israel imposes a siege on Gaza beginning in 2007. And as you correctly pointed out, after 2007, everything gets dramatically worse. Now it's Israel's explicit policy to calculate the caloric needs of the population. Um, they calculate how many men are in Gaza, how many women are in Gaza, how many children are in Gaza, and what are the caloric needs of children versus men versus women. They come up with a calculation, and they allow that much food into Gaza beginning in 2007. And so by the eve of October 7th, 2023, what you have is a population, 80% of people in Gaza dependent on food handouts. I mean, it's basically, there's very few families or households in Gaza who can provide enough food, who can put enough food on the table. And you even had some reporting in 2022 that something like half 
of Palestinians in Gaza were foregoing health expenses to put food on the table and were foregoing utility payments. They could not afford electricity just to be able to pay for food. Just another thing I want to just put another horror. I want to put a historical context to you. Um, is and actually, it's kind of related, relate partly just what just jumping off from there. If you look at the polling, for example, of, of Jewish Israelis at the moment, and um, you know, and I, I do think often about white South Africans um, under apartheid, where actually, if we're honest, the vast majority bought into apartheid. I think that's an important point to make. There's nothing unique about kind of that facet, I suppose, of, of, of this particular um, injustice. Um, but, you know, the polling is gruesome, um, where you get 60%, say, opposed to humanitarian assistance in Gaza. Given the context we've just spoken about, that means mass death. Um, we already have mass death. It means a lot more mass death. Um, whether it be, um, uh, you know, polling showing that 46% or so, I think the last poll suggested, didn't think there was enough firepower in Gaza. I don't know what that looks like, given the total destruction of Gaza we've currently uh, seen. Again, something like 86% support ethnic cleansing of Gaza. I mean, these are bleak high figures where you get overwhelming, just overwhelming support for policies, which I think a lot of us would say have quite genocidal implications. I'm just wondering, how does it get to that point? Because you do look, I do think it's interesting, you look back at atrocities like history, and one of the things that's always quite chilling is how did many, so many people who regard themselves as moderate and humane and end up supporting terrible, terrible atrocities. People who cry at sad films, people who get their hearts broken, people who help vulnerable pensioners across the road, and then they end up supporting what amounts to the mass killing of innocent civilians. And that's happened all the way through history in lots of different places and contexts. So this is quite an, an interesting and in all the worst ways case study that are happening in real time. What's the Is there kind of a historical context to that? Or, or any context you're interested in? Look, as a Jew, I've always asked myself, how is it that these Germans living in, in Nazi Germany during World War II, how is it that they just stood by and did nothing? And in fact, probably supported what was happening. And, you know, here we're asked with the same question, which is there's, there's a plausible genocide happening an hour's drive away from Tel Aviv. And 95% of people in the state of Israel, as far as, I, uh, as, far as some mid-January polling data coming out of, uh, of, of Jewish-Israeli society, 95% of Jewish-Israelis think there was either uh, uh, the appropriate amount of force being used in Gaza or not enough force. And it's like, how is that possible? I mean, just to emphasize, just to highlight and underline the question, which is honestly, I think at first glance, it's, it's horrifying and it's shocking, but not surprising. Um, the amount of propaganda that Israelis are fed from the moment they are born um, all the way through adulthood is truly astonishing. I mean, obviously we have all, all the atrocity propaganda that we've all seen, the, uh, you know, the 40, all, all these myths and lies that were spread intentionally. The 40 beheaded babies lie, uh, the babies in the ovens lie, the mass, uh, the, the mass rapes a, a lie, the military headquarters under Shifa lie. Uh, uh, so all these, all the atrocity propaganda. But of course, the propaganda is, is, is much, much deeper. You know, if you, I, I was chatting with a Palestinian friend of mine uh, who lives in the Galilee. He said, I can't get, I can't get the cable company to come fix my, uh, my cable box. They won't drive into my village because it's an Arab village. They're afraid. They're afraid to drive into an Arab village in Israel. They're taught, I mean, the entire system, they enter a mall, they're checked uh, by, uh, by, by a security guard. They enter a cafe, they're checked uh, uh, by a security guard. 
they're constantly told wherever they go, be careful of the Arabs. Don't drive into a Palestinian neighborhood. You know, don't go through an Arab village. Um, they're taught, you know, so they're taught to be fearful of Palestinians. Palestinians are afraid. And then they're told Palestinians are cockroaches uh, by the Israeli media. They're said, level Gaza. So there's this dehumanizing rhetoric in the media. And then, of course, you have to realize Jewish Israelis, um, for, for, for the vast majority of Jewish Israelis, except the ultra-Orthodox, military service is compulsory. Okay? It, it, you know, serving in the military it's part of one's identity as a Jew. It's, it's a rite of passage. It's kind of like going to university in a place like the UK or the United States, right? You do this not because, because you've been taught your whole life that, you know, this is part of who you are. You have to defend your country. You know, you're proud to be Israeli. You're going to pick up arms and fight the terrorists, right? So there's so much inculcation and indoctrination in Israeli society. I think Aharon Barak said it best. This is the Israeli judge uh, who Israel appointed uh, to the ICJ panel. Oh, you know, the, both sides, South Africa and Israel, got to appoint a judge uh, to, to, uh, to the ICJ uh, um, court. And Aharon Barak said, it's in his 10-page uh, opinion that he came out, his minority opinion, he wrote, it's not in Israel's DNA to commit uh, uh, atrocities, to violate international humanitarian law. The starting point, for Israel, because all the Jewish Israelis serve are required to serve in the army, not just when they're 18, 19, and 20, but many are required to serve reserve duty until middle age. Many serve much far beyond their three years of required service. So you have an entire society serving in this army that by definition is doing good in the world. So it's not that so, so these uh, reports of Israeli apartheid coming out of, of, of Human Rights Watch and, and amnesty, these reports of Israeli uh, military using Palestinians as human shields, these uh, uh, rulings by the ICJ that Israel is carrying out a probable uh, or a plausible genocide, they're a violation of the basic principle of the state of Israel for Jewish Israelis, which is the Israeli military are the good guys, and it's against the DNA of the institution to do, wrong, to do these horrible things. So if, you, if your starting point is we are the good guys and they are the terrorists, then everything you do fits into that narrative. Every action of the Israeli military uh, can be justified, right? Every, so it's really a kind of a total dehumanization um, of, of Palestinians at every level, um, in the military, uh, uh, by the media, in schools, that are erasure from, from the school curriculum. They're not discussed, they're not talked about um, in, 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 in the Israeli public school system. And then I think the deeper, the, the, if you really have to dig deep and ask yourself, how did it come to be that 95% of Jewish Israelis seem to support a campaign that is unanimously described as a plausible genocide, or almost unanimous, well, I think it comes down to the fact that the Jewish state is basically set up to serve Jews. The, the, the purpose of the state of Israel is not to protect Palestinians. It's not to prevent a, a genocide being committed against uh, uh, Palestinian people in Gaza. That is not the point of Israel. If the point of Israel is to protect Jews, serve Jewish interests, uh, <clears throat> ensure Jewish prosperity, well, then look, there's 136 hostages uh, being held by Hamas. You know, th th these terrorists are going to carry out another attack. Uh, again, they've said that. Hamas has said, we will carry out more October 7th. And Israelis hear those things. And so they say, look, the point of this state is to protect us. And, and the Palestinians, you know, at the end of the day, ultimately, it, they're just not part of the conversation. They're just, their deaths don't matter. With all that in mind, a lot of people probably end up feeling a bit hopeless about how 
any of his ends, which is a land which is shared on the basis of equality and justice in some form, whatever the form that takes, uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, neither of whom are going anywhere, not if there's any justice, obviously. Um, and, you know, with the context of, for example, the polling we just said of where Jewish-Israeli public opinion is at, whether it be the ICJ ruling of a possible genocide, the statements by Israeli ministers openly calling for Gaza to be ethnically cleansed, and you can see the mass destruction being lay, laying the foundations for, you know, the idea that, well, Gaza is now inhospitable. So uh, voluntary migration, meaning in practice, people are so desperate that they feel they have no choice but to leave if them and their families are going to survive. Um, people look at that and think, well, and the US is so complicit in it. I mean, if Trump or Biden, but, you know, Trump, it, it could even be even more off the leash. It, 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 it looks bleak, any sense of a just peace. So what do you think looking at this? I mean, I guess with the historian hat on, I mean, the thing about history is you can see how things can change quite quickly, quite dramatically sometimes, for good and for definitely for bad. But what do you think? I mean, looking at the long view, you know, given the bleakness of the current moment, is there any possibility for some hope? We, we all have to remain hopeful. I think that is a, a fundamental human desire that I have, and I'm sure you have, and I'm sure many other people have as well. What is there to be hopeful of? The honest answer is not much, but but let's let's talk about um, let's talk about the, the things at least I think we we, we can be um, maybe somewhat hopeful for. For the first time in in certainly my lifetime, at least the first time I can re recall, an average American, an average U.S. American, perhaps the same is true in Europe. I would imagine um, is talking about Palestine, is aware now of the decades and decades of violence that has been perpetrated against Palestinians. On October 6th, that was not the case, right? In two, 2021 was the most violent year on record uh, 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 in the Israel-Palestine dispute since the Second Intifada. 2022 was more violent than 2021. 2023, on the eve of, before October 7th, was more violent than 21, 22. And yet, and yet, nobody cared. No one was talking about it. The mainstream media, the New York, I mean, uh, I'm not sure really the mainstream media is much of a, uh, <clears throat> uh, we should be hopeful uh, of the, uh, the mainstream media, like, you know, <laughs> publishing uh, uh, sane or humane uh, uh, stories on, uh, 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 with regard to the Palestinians, but average people were not talking about it. Now, at the, United, the polling in the United States is, is remarkable, okay? 60% of Americans support a ceasefire. 80% of Democrats support a ceasefire, Okay. And, and, and we're talking about mass protests in almost every major city for months and months on end. When have we seen that for uh, uh, for uh, uh, the Palestinians? That has not happened, as far as I can tell, ever. So there is, I think, some amount of swelling uh, uh, in, in in public opinion, uh, so support, swelling of support for the Palestinian people. I think that's one uh, positive development, I would say. Um, I think this ICJ ruling is... I mean, in the words of every single international legal expert I've heard speak about this, is historic. It is truly historic. I mean, we've a plausible genocide being carried out by Israel in, a, 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 with United States complicity, with UK complicity, with German complicity. This is historic. Uh, so I think for, for those of us who care about human rights and who are advocates for uh, Palestinian human rights, who are advocates to end Israeli apartheid and United States complicity, um, this is a real tool in our toolkit. 
um, that we've never had before. And now we can use and talk about openly. This is a toolkit for all of civil society, churches, synagogues, mosques, universities, corporations, businesses, nonprofit organizations, governments, states, individuals to now basically take these decisions that have been put out by the ICJ and go to work, uh, issue warrants for uh, uh, arrest warrants for the criminals who have been uh, responsible for these atrocities. Um, you know, it, Maybe states will start to deny, deny, no longer recognize Israeli travel documents, no longer allow Israelis. So th there are real things that can happen now as a result of this ICJ ruling, and it's a, it's incumbent upon all of us to take action. I think that is something which is optimistic, and it's it's, it's important to talk about. I interviewed Gideon Levy, the Israeli journalist, and he thinks, given the role of the U.S. in all of this, the fact things are shifting in the U.S. Uh, may mean that if you're looking at certainly 10 to 15 years, if you were maybe some of the rulers of Israel, you might sort of panic a bit, um, given uh, the impunity Israel currently enjoys is actually being challenged in, in lots of fundamental ways, as you've described. So that was brilliant. I mean, it was such an in-depth look at, obviously, an issue which so many of us are talking about discussing, but it's so important to put it in that historical uh, broader context. Um, this, as you know, goes back a very, very long time indeed. Um, and one of the many tragedies, I guess, of much media coverage is it doesn't place any of the horrors, not just in Palestine, but elsewhere in, 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 in actual broader context. And that leaves people horribly ill-informed about the world around them. Um, do follow, by the way, Zach, on uh, social media. He does brilliant stuff um, about this particular issue. Um, it's at underlying Zach with an H Foster, but also um, has a brilliant Palestine newsletter, at palestinenexus.com. Uh, so do also check that out. Uh, do share this video and press like and subscribe. But Zach, really appreciate it. That was brilliant stuff. Oh, and thanks so much for having me on. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.